in the world in which we live, the power of money can be looked at in, in a diversity of ways. You can even talk about pleasure because there is a certain concupiscence or addiction, addiction to watching your money grow, like it's like a Facebook addiction. If you're really you know, sufficiently wealthy, you can sit. I'm sure there are people who watch their stock market portfolio go up all day, not out of any stress, but just out of delight or curiosity. And that's a kind of addictive jouissance or concupiscence, like you know, just looking at Facebook because you're distracted by it or watching incessant cat videos on YouTube or something. I mean, it's a different register, but you know, I'm just trying to think about like, what we're looking at is where does the human heart go, okay? Um, does happiness consist in honors? Now, this seems like a better candidate. Um, on the contrary, happiness is in the happy, those who are happy. But honor is not in the honored, rather in him who honors and who, often, and who offers deference to the person honored. Now, this is very important. I don't know, has anybody here read the categories of Aristotle? Yeah, so when Aristotle's younger, he wrote the categories, which are like basic metaphysical categories of being. So if we go back to our metaphysical victim example, Caroline. Caroline is a substance. That's the basic category. Now, in the substance in here is two fundamental properties, quantity and quality. Those are the most important. So quantity is how tall Caroline is, how much Caroline weighs, you know, et cetera. Then qualities, like I don't know what, Caroline is thoughtful. Caroline is um, able to play the piano, maybe, or whatever, you know. So we could list the qualities of the being of the person. And then you can talk about other derivative properties, like relations, right? So we have a relation to whoever gave birth to us. That is our mother or father. Or we have a relation to our professor at college who supervises our thesis. Or we have a relationship to our friends. And these, some of these relations are far more important than others, okay? Honor is not a quality of a person or a quantity of a person. It's certainly not their substance. It's a relation. But it's a relation between them and, them and, the, and the widespread perception of them by a, a given public. And it's a certain kind of relation, like parenthood is a kind of relation. Not about honor, really, primarily. People honor their father and mother at certain stages in life, but that's not really the heart of parenthood. You know, I'm your father. The main thing you should do is honor me. It's weird, right? It's a relationship of love. It is a relationship also of education, shared life, ultimately a friendship in a healthy relationship. It becomes a friendship as you mature. Honor is about people perceiving a human being's qualities as emitting something that is noble, probably characteristic in, in a healthy way as contributing to common good. So is it's, it's, predi it's predicated upon the, the presence in our hypothetical metaphysical substance of a quality which is honorable, which is a nobility. That could be a nobility of mind, that could be a nobility of heart, that could be a nobility. So we honor soldiers, like the soldier gets on the plane first. Why is that? Because they're offering their life for their country. It's their heroicism. That's a quality of soul in them. It's a nobility. But then, now, what if the soldier does everything he does, not for the country, but for the, for the honor? It becomes corruptive, right? So does he offer his life in order to defend the homeland, or does he offer his life to accrue honor? It's a different end, okay? It's impossible for happiness to consist in honor, for honor is given to a man on account of some excellence in him, some nobility. 
and consequently it is a sign and attestation of the excellence that is in the person honored. <clears throat> now a man's excellence is in proportion especially to his happiness, which is man's perfect good, and to its parts, those, uh, those goods by which he has a certain share of happiness. And therefore honor cannot result from happiness, but happiness cannot principally consist therein. It doesn't give much of an argument here, but he's landing, he's, he's making a certain kind of strong statement, which is happiness is an acquired through the, happiness is achieved through the acquisition of a certain excellence of soul. And you know excellence is the word in English we often use for virtue. Right, so once you have a stable set of virtues and you live in a virtuous and excellent way, you acquire nobility. So as you achieve happiness through moral excellence, you become a noble being, and people rightly honor you for that. But it's the fruit of nobility, it's not the goal of nobility. Now, here is just a, something you said very briefly, yeah? I was gonna ask, does this have anything to do with the fact that it's, would be kind of shooting a moving target, trying to aim for others, honor, something really substantial, it's totally yeah, I mean, the image that comes to me is I'm trying to drive a car somewhere. At the same time, I'm trying to get outside on the front hood, lift up the, lift up the hood, and look at the engine going. Uh, but that's, maybe that's even the wrong thing. It's like, because honor is a finus effectus rather than a finus. It's, it's not just an end. It's an effect of reaching the end. But it's, if you make it the end itself, then you've basically mm-hmm, substituted so, I mean, this is a clear, a clear case, you can say, in politicians and in academics. Um, you're, you're seeking um, to be the, the excellence of the common good through a service, a service to the common good. But you actually start to enjoy the honor of being, I don't know, a congressman or a senator or a president. And so it actually becomes about seeking the, com- the good of the common good, procuring the common good in order to be honored. You want to see your name on a building. You want to become a, fam- a person who's seen, not just famous, that we're talking about in a moment, but you want to be seen as noble. So you do things to be seen as noble. You know? Or you write books so that people will say, that guy's really you know, illuminating. Right? Or that guy really deserved to get the, I don't know what, prize. Right? So the, the honor becomes an end in itself, and that's the deep corruption of the final end of the virtue in question. Well, I mean, it's, this is really deep in religious people, like to try to seek, serve God to be a saint. I want to be a saint. When I hear that from young religious or older religious, I get worried because actually holiness is something that should happen when the person's looking away from themselves at God. But if they're really obsessed with becoming holy, if the real reason they enter religious life is to become holy, I mean, of course, it's correct they should become holy. They should seek to become holy. That should be a true desire. But if you think about it as being honored by other people, as opposed to becoming a person who loves God above all things, then you're actually instrumentalizing God in order to reach some kind of exemplary form that will shine. And what you want to do is be a shiny object in God's house rather than love God for his own sake. Now, religious life has a great way of purifying that aspiration in human beings. But it is interesting to watch it happen in people because it often is very painful for them. You have enormous perfectionists, rightly highly perfectionistic people who enter 
religious life, and then they have to wilt under the glare of their own imperfection over time. And what's interesting is that's very painful for years, but eventually they forget themselves often, and they start living for God in a more purified way and accepting their mm, imperfection and brutal, brutal ugliness in some respects. And then, then they begin to become much more joyful people and become, there's a lightness of being that enters them because they start to live more for God himself. Now that could be also itself an, a, you know, an excuse for them to not seek holiness, and that would be a problem too. But the seeking of holiness is really the seeking of God. It's not the seeking of the perception that one is living an honorable life. Well, more about this later, perhaps. Anyway, he says in reply to objection one, as the philosopher says, honor is not the reward of virtue for which the virtuous work, but they receive honor from men by way of reward as from those who have nothing greater to offer. But virtue's true reward is happiness itself for which the virtuous work. Whereas if they worked for honor, it would no longer be a virtue but ambition. This is really the intellectual's temptation. If you think you're the only, if you think you're like this person at this table who's not subject to this, category error. People who have very strong intellectual inclinations are by that very nature somewhat spiritual people. They may not be very like interested in the ethical life, but all people who are strongly intellectually inclined are interested in the spiritual life, even if they don't believe it's spiritual. And the, the, the way they get corrupt is through ambition because it's a, more, it's a much more noble form of seduction than crass wealth or pleasure. And they look down on people who want those things because it makes them feel more spiritual, noble, and intelligent. So it's those idiots over there just chasing dollar bills. And even those people who are just going after bodies, they think that stuff, that's, I'm above all that. But be careful because often what they're going after is something much more, it's, the serpent is more hidden, but it's actually closer to the heart because it's more noble. I want to shine and I want others to bathe in my light. It's different than wanting to illuminate people with the truth because you want them to be, to do well, you want their, them to flourish in their own internal goodness. Because we should, I mean, all of us have uh, something to communicate to others in the order of truth and in the order of love. Anybody who says, oh, I, you know, by humility, I have nothing to contribute, that's idiotic. Every one of us is made in the image of God in a unique way. All of us have unique qualities of intellect and will. That's just true of everyone in the human race. If you think of somebody who's like below you or above you such that like either they or you have nothing to contribute, that's a huge metaphysical error. It's contrary to everything we've been studying. Like we're made in the image of God, we all have a lot to contribute. But the purification of that is you're contributing to the other for the good of the flourishing of the other, for their sake. And also as an aspect of loving yourself. And then there's the reciprocity of friendship, which is where people learn to love each other. As you can see, I take these questions to be metaphysical and moral examinations of conscience. But they're really interesting, because they help you really start to become self-conscious about what you believe. OK, on we go. Whether man's happiness consists in fame or glory. Now, fame and glory are. Uh, also relational, but they're not necessarily based in the same way on the excellence within you. So look at, listen, listen to what he says. I answer that man's happiness cannot consist in human fame or glory, for glory consists in being well-known and praised. So it's, it's a little bit like being talked about. It's not just being admired. Like, so for example, 
let's say you reached honor. Honor doesn't require necessarily that many people know about you, but just that the people who know about you are themselves very noble. You could live for the honor of being, I think the other dons in your Oxford college think you're really, really a, a big deal. And the, the dons in Oxford college are not very numeric. If you went to the Polynesian islands and they said, oh, he's very learned, but you wouldn't care what they thought because you're after honor. But fame and glory, I mean, you, you want to be, you know, it, this is widespread. This is quantity matters. This is like, you know, um, well, this is Instagram world. I don't know their names, but like uh, Cyrus, Mir Mir Miley, Miley? Miley? Is it Miley? <laughs> this is like, huh? <laughs> Miley, Cyrus, and Brittany, and Britney Spears? Brittany, she's, she's old now, right? Yeah. Lady Gaga, yeah. Kardashian. Yeah, Kardashians. The Kardashians are like probably the, the epitomal type. Okay. Now, the thing known is related to human knowledge otherwise than to God's knowledge, for human knowledge is caused by the things known, whereas God's knowledge is the cause of the things known. Right? We exist because God knows us, but we come to know things because they exist. To be realistic in your knowledge is to come to know what really exists, but God causes us to exist from his knowledge. Wherefore, the perfection of human good, which is called happiness, cannot be caused by human knowledge, but rather human knowledge of another's happiness proceeds from, and in a fashion is caused by, human, human happiness itself, inchoate or perfect. Consequently, man's happiness cannot consist in favor and glory. On the other hand, man's good depends on God's knowledge of its cause, and therefore man's beatitude depends on its cause. All right, let me keep going. Furthermore, we must observe that human knowledge often fails, especially in contingent singulars such as human acts. For, since, for this reason, human glory is frequently deceptive. For since God cannot be deceived, his glory is always true. Well, I don't know exactly what he's arguing here. This is not my specialty, but I believe one thing he's saying is, if you think about my theory of relations, right, that the, the, knowledge, the knowledge that the people who are uh, achieve fame or glory, or those who whom I aspire to fame or glory, the happiness we would be looking for would be happiness that would stem from a kind of knowledge. I know many people are looking at me. That's basically it. That relation, those relationships are happening. And so because I'm procuring that set of relationships of people looking at me, and I'm knowing that, I'm acquiring happiness from it. And what he's saying is, in a certain way, it's supposed to work the other way around. You achieve happiness, and then you come to know that you're happy from the moral excellence that you've achieved through your life of noble knowledge and love. Right, so it's not that you first know a set of things about relationships you've acquired, and they make you happy. You become happy in a virtuous way, and then you come to know that you've achieved a stability of happiness. I think that's the kind of claim he's making. What I would argue is, People who seek fame and happiness as a stable... Now, uh, to be fair, I think some of these people are probably a little shrewder than what I'm about to say. Miley may, in the end, really want money and not fame so much, but she needs the fame to make the money, and she wants the money so she can be happy in her marriage because she isn't married, I believe, although it's been a little bit of a rough ride getting there, but anyway, so she's now in a monotony. She's temporarily in a monogamous relationship. But anyway, the point is, maybe some of these people, the natural law affirms itself. Maybe the, the natural law affirms itself more than we actually want to, uh, you know, we, we, we think, okay? Because in the end, it's interesting. People tend to get married and have children. It's interesting, huh, these people? So the natural law just tends to reassert itself. 
And so often their fame, they want to have money. They want the money to have security and security so they can have family life. Oh, okay. But it's, a, it's actually much more boring than it seems. But the thing is that if you look at the structure of the pursuit of glory and fame, you have to maintain the relationships. And that's why things like Instagram are extremely powerful. Because by continually downloading pictures, the people are telegraphing us, sending us, they are saying, look at me, maintain the relation of my fame and glory. And then they can attain knowledge of that. And it can translate into economic wealth, but it also is a way of maintaining the good that they want to preserve. Now, the other version of that, which may be less about appearances and photographs, is political opinions. Why do the stars always tell us what they believe politically? Why do we care? Well, because they're famous, and that's interesting. What is it that about, fa you know, this is a subject in the book, The Movie Goer by uh, Walker Percy. Like, why do, why do people feel special when a famous person like, walks, is no longer on the cover of the People magazine in the, in the aisle nine, but now is in front of them? And he's got a famous book, image in the book, where the, the, the lead character sees a, he sees a famous star, and he goes over and lights his cigarette for him. And it's like he, for a moment, feels re more real because he's lit the cigarette of a famous person. And that's, like, that's a really interesting observation. That's true. But why is that relationship like, seem to make him more important? But in any case, you can see how it would work from the other side. The person who's giving you their political opinions is staying relevant, relative, relation-making. And they're maintaining their, they're feeding their fame and glory. They have to find ways to do that. Now, like I said, there may be more at stake. Okay, I'm not going to judge their hearts. We really shouldn't. But if you just look at the action itself, it's not teleologically oriented. You wouldn't say, like, the best way, the pathway towards nobility and virtue is to become famous. You'd say, actually, becoming famous is a pretty dangerous way in which to lead your life because it can lead you away from what's most honorable. So as, as opposed to seeing honor and fame as strongly overlapping, you probably should see them as, uh, in many ways, potentially very divergent. Whether man's happiness consists in power. <coughs> so, sorry. Yeah. Do we see this in general that uh, these lesser goods or whatever you want to call them that are usually confounded with happiness, that they tend to diverge and there's no unity among them, whereas happiness is one? Well, happiness, so all these things do procure happiness, uh, but they don't procure a happiness that Aquinas thinks is specific to man's deepest inclinations and in nature. So he, the reason that they're dangerous is because they do procure some, th there are ways in which spiritual animals can spend their lives. Like I can spend my life in, the accrue in, in trying to accrue honors. I can spend my life in clerical ambition. I can spend my life in academic ambition. I can spend my life in, uh, in trying to be famous or maintain my fame or trying to make myself a famous person or I don't know what. Or be the, I mean, a lot of times people in their little town you know, uh, they become like the mayor, or they get on the they're the head of the Rotary Club, and they they and they and they're on the board of the of the golf club, and they're like the little king. You know, they're not going to be the king of the world, but the king of their club. They're the king of their, you know, their uh, their their little town. And his point isn't that there's not happiness in that. It's just that there's a lot of ways that, that stuff's kind of sad and passing and doesn't sustain them in the deepest dimension of their person. But yes, I mean, he also thinks you can have all this if you have a rightly ordered love. You can have all this, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, a saint like Mother Teresa was famous and honorable and honored and got the Nobel Prize. And she didn't care because she loved God so much that it didn't matter to her. 
She just used it for the good of, of God and Christ and other souls. So when you're really strong, this stuff is like, doesn't matter. You just brush it off. It has no power over you. Yeah, yeah. She, she, I mean, actually, I think he thinks that Aquinas himself is famous and honorable, right? So it's it, and it, you know the fact that that tone that Aquinas is thought as famous could be of use to us and to other people. Let me ask Aquinas why do people persist in pursuing these alternatives to true happiness when, first of all, from their own experience, they can tell that there's a deep dissatisfaction. I don't know that it's always well known in the United States. I think a lot of people do think this is all there is. I mean, there's soft nihilism. Not all nihilisms are hard nihilisms. There's a lot of soft nihilism out there. Soft nihilism is a lot more common than hard nihilism. That's why the hard nihilists are actually kind of convenient, because they kind of, uh, they sort of show you, they, they sort of tighten up the perspective and make you see what's really at stake. It's good to take a soft nihilist and expose them to Hume or Nietzsche and like make them really think about it. But I mean, he, the answer to your question is when you study the wounds of original sin in the first part. And there are four, ignorance in the mind, weakness of will and self-love, um, concupiscence, which is the disordinate, irrational, loving, sensible pleasures to too great an extent, and uh, irascible, the wounds of the irascible powers, which tend to be inordinate anger, but especially uh, laziness. And so, because we're wounded, it's very hard for us to either perceive the truth about our moral state, or even if we do sometimes perceive it, to actually pursue the moral nobility that we ought to. And in fact, because we're so wounded by sin, we are going to get it wrong. We are going to be weak. We are going to fail. Not all the time. He doesn't believe in radical depravity. But often, and with regards to the most important things, God and life with God, he's very pessimistic about what we can do deeply in the moral domain, religiously, without grace. So like worship, adoration, which he sees as natural, prayer and adoration of God, which he thinks are natural and in some way prevalent throughout human culture, they're weaker in people without grace. Very, very much so. Okay, so consequence of original sin. When you say weaker in people without grace, is that weaker in non-baptized people? Or? It's not necessarily the same thing. Okay. So that's a very good theological question. Does Aquinas think that I mean, he thinks clearly the sacramental economy gives you great moral advantages. There's no question. I think Aquinas is somewhat skeptical about the possibility of widespread salvation outside the sacramental economy. But he does think grace is, he says grace is offered to all people. He, sa he thinks that grace is offered to all people when they reach the age of reason. So he, I mean, he does think grace, he, he talks also about saints in the, among the Gentiles or the pagans outside of Israel before the time of the coming of Christ. So, I mean, he has a, a fairly nuanced and complicated view of the universality of grace. What about unbaptized people that have more natural virtue than baptized people? Is that possible? It's totally possible, especially if they come out of a traditional culture that's taught them more virtue versus a Christian culture that's become unbelieving and corrupt and decadent from within or that's more contested. 
And then there's just the individual. I mean, you could come from a very virtuous Catholic Christian culture and be very well educated, and just be personally corrupted, and unbelieving or whatever. Uh, or you know, lots of things could happen. And then you have another person who's more natural, a pagan who has more natural virtue. Now, Aquinas, there are questions about how to read Aquinas on. These are natural virtues of a moral of a moral life, not supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and love. Now, there are questions about whether Aquinas thinks pagan virtue, quote unquote, how robust can it be? he also talks about how it's going to be limited. And there's lots of literature on this. But this is, you guys are asking great questions about what's coming, what goes, you know, follows from all this, right? So you're right. You're right to foresee all these questions. And they're all in this treatise eventually. I mean, and, that, and then the commentators. See, you're, it's funny how you're obviously not uh, tempted by power. You don't want to know about it. Let's let's go. Let's talk about it anyway. As you get old, <laughs> as, as you get old, as you get older, power. As you get older and you feel your powerlessness, power becomes more interestingly tempting. I answer that it's impossible for happiness to consist in power for two reasons: because power has the nature of a principle, whereas happiness is the nature of a last end. That's really the key answer. It's amazing how Aquinas can say things in one sentence. <laughs> you have power so that you can do something, but you do something so you can reach your end. Happiness is not about having the power to do something. It's about being in the end. It's about doing the thing that will make you happy. So yes, you need to have the power to become happy. Like the power to be intelligent is the power of intellect. The faculty of intellect is what allows you to gaze and on the truth and contemplate the truth. But it's the contemplation of the truth that makes you happy, not the power to contemplate the truth. Second, sorry. Uh, so this word principle, this may be a a word that's used in multiple senses in Aquinas. Uh, how might one understand this? Excellent question. I mean, basically, Aristotle uses the word principle in two general fashions. One is it's a first starting point of human reason or perhaps of human action. So it's something in me subjectively. Like, I begin from, a first, you know, in my life, uh, my personal philosophy is X. So I always start from first principle X. Um, and then there's the external notion of a principle in the world as the as a first principle ontologically in the thing, by which I gain perspective on it's it's the cause and explanatory source of intelligibility. So, like for example, if the human person has spiritual powers that make us different than other animals, then the spiritual soul is the principle, meaning the source and causal explanation that makes it explainable why we are different than the other animals. Or if like, there's a principle of living form in a living thing that's not in a non-living thing, then the principle of form is what makes the animal explicable as a self-organizing entity as distinct from a non-animate entity. So he uses principle in one of those two ways, usually. Yeah, uh, but it can principi. Yeah, principium principi. It, it can be beginning, but it, can, it doesn't mean it doesn't have to mean temporal. It can be it can be logical beginning. It can be temporal beginning, and it can be ontological. Uh, yeah. First principle foundation. But in all sense, it's kind of opposed to and. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Keep going. Second, because power has relation to good and evil, whereas happiness is man's proper and perfect good. Right? So you have power. You can use power well or badly. 
it's funny, you know, this is so different than the will to power. Anyway, um, you, it's great to be powerful, but it's be- I was once on a plane flight in Texas, and it was a small flight, and there was a lot of executives. I guess they're flying, you know, between these, they're probably corporate people, a lot of them probably work in oil. And there was a young stewardess there, young African-American woman. What did she say? She said, uh, she gave that little speech they give, but she just added something like, and just remember, it's nice to be important, but it's more important to be nice. (laughs) It's nice to be powerful, but the best use of power is to use the power to be good. She said it in a kind of charming Texas way, but she's agreeing with Aquinas here. So I won't go on more, but power is really about having means at your disposition. And you will in life have power. I mean, you have power over your children. You have power in your domain in your job. As a priest, you have power, sacred power even. There's all kinds of power in institutions that if you just live long enough, you will acquire some stake in. Because what happens to older people is they get older. And uh, if you're like 25 or 30 and you even have the most minimal competence, you end up running something just because the people currently running something get old and go away. And that, and then you, and then you, be, and then you become, and then you become one of them, and you go away. And that seems like, and like when you're in your 20s and 30s, that seems unimaginable. You think I got to do lots of things to get like one of these to sit at the table. And then actually, what you realize is, actually, if you just show up and answer emails, they eventually put you on one of these chairs, <laughs> just because there's nobody else to put there, you know. And so my, my point is like, it, it's actually not that hard to have power eventually. You just have to stay alive. And, 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 sh- and, and show up and answer your emails, and they will give you power. But the key thing is to remember that Aquinas is saying you have to use the power well. You have to use the power for the good. Uh, and that, but that, that's going to be, be best used if you already know what happiness is. All right. Whether man's happiness consists in any bodily good. So does he end up arguing that people who use power at evil hands end up unhappy? Or does he argue differently? Well, he thinks they're objectively in a disordered state. I mean, if, if I use power just to accrue honor, or, you know, in the more dastardly scenes, you know, an ideological world-altering experiment where I need to assassinate some millions of people in order to make my ideological purity, you know, imposed on the people. Um, yeah, he thinks that's an unhappy thing to do. Because you're not really reaching your true end. Your life is not just tragic, it's like massively vicious. What we call it is a, a life of vice. Ambition is the lower form, but like if you want to become a proper mass murderer and ideologue, then you know you're really into it. Like it's what we call the vice of becoming a tyrant and and in fact also propagating evil um, on a mass scale through structural violence and lies. And it can even become idolatrous because you're taking the place through the means of the state, you're taking trying to take the place of God by shaping the future, you know, telling people where they can live or die, right? So there's all kinds of ways that can go, like, into... The, the, the dignity of man is that we're made for the infinite. The problem is we can begin to imitate the infinite in some very perverse ways and try to impose, even in our finitude, a kind of an, an ideal on the world that has this openness to, like, an indefinite set of alterations of the world around us. And if the bad angels give you bad advice, you could become a little bit of a bad angel yourself. And there are some history, you know, there's some bad agents out there. Let's look at just the, the next one. Does the, okay, bodily goods. 
I answer that it's impossible for man's happiness to consist in goods of the body. That sounds very stark. You know, if you've had a serious bout of illness, it seems like your happiness is pretty tied up with your body. And this for two reasons, he says. Because, first, because if a thing be ordained to another as to its end, its last end cannot consist in its preservation of its being, in the preservation of its being. Hence, a captain does not intend as a last end the preservation of the ship entrusted to him, since a ship is ordained to something else, navigation. Like, so our body's like a ship. It's not quite an artifact. This is not Descartes. But we're, we're going through this world, on the seas of this world, in our bodies, which are part of what we are, our dignity. But we're trying to get to a destination beyond this world. Now, just as the ship is entrusted to the captain that he may steer its course, so man is given over to his will and reason. Now, it is evident that man is ordained to something as his end, since man is not the supreme good. Therefore, the last end of man's reason and will cannot be the preservation of man's being. This is an interesting thing to say. The fact that we can be, seek happiness even, be, even while we die, and even beyond the horizon of death, is actually a very great sign of our dignity, that we're made for more than just the preservation of our own bodily life. That's a huge spiritual like, message. It's hard to learn. It's our lifetime that we have to learn it. But basically, it's about kind of saying, your happiness, you're so dignified as a spiritual being. And your happiness consists in God such that you can learn to surrender your body in death and still seek happiness. You don't have to say, because I am one day going to perish bodily, I must only work for the preservation of my bodily life. I'm going to freeze myself in a cryptogenic refrigerator and have them bring me back from the dead once they figure out how to rewire the cells so they can make me into a long-lasting, technologically conceived robot. No, you don't have to preserve your being. You can spend it. You can give your life over. You can surrender it because there's something in you made for something much higher and more ultimate. Second, because granted that the end of man's will and reason be the preservation of his being, it could not be said that the end of man is some good of the body. So we should preserve our life. Huh? I mean, you know, you don't touch the stove when it's hot. For man's being consists in soul and body, and though the being of the body depends on the soul, yet the being of the human soul depends not on the body, as shown above. So that's very important, too. You, you want to take care of your soul, your body, but you take care of your body because your body exists for your soul. You don't, pick your, you don't live your life, in your, as it were, in, as a soul or in your soul in order to be first and foremost concerned about your body. Now, I'm just going to tell you something. When you read Aquinas later on in the Secunda Secunde on charity, he talks about an order of charity. What should you love most? Should you love God more than yourself? He says you should. Should you love yourself more than your neighbor? Aquinas, yes. Aquinas says you should. He says you can't really love your neighbor if you don't first love yourself. So you need to love yourself and you have a certain kind of responsibility to love yourself first. And there's wounds of original sin that we don't love ourselves the way we ought to, in the right way. They need to be healed. We need to learn to love ourselves. But then he says, should I love my soul more than my neighbors? Like, should I he says, should I love my, my body more than I love my neighbor's soul? He says, no. I should be willing to die in my body, in witness to the truth, for the good of my neighbor's soul. 
He doesn't say, should I love my body more than my neighbor's body or my neighbor's body? Like, like, should I die? Like, should I give away my liver to you so you can live? I don't think he believes you should do that. I think that, you know, that kind of, you can't mutilate your own body when it's healthy for the sake of another person's body, right? But you can die in martyrdom to witness to the truth for the sake of the good of the soul of the other person. It's interesting. These questions are interesting. So you get these interesting sort of developments that come later. Okay. Whether man's happiness consists in pleasure. It's interesting how this comes a little bit after. Does he mean bodily pleasure or does he mean sense does he mean he means sensible pleasures or does he mean spiritual pleasures? He means mostly sensible. I answer that bodily pleasure body bodily delights are more generally known. The name of pleasure has been appropriated to them, though other delights excel them. <coughs> so there are spiritual delights. Now this is interesting. So now that there's we, you know, we, we live for more than just bodily happiness, but do we live for spiritual pleasure? Spiritual pleasure. Is happiness spiritual pleasure? Ah, it's an interesting question. The pleasure of getting the math problem right, the pleasure of understanding an important philosophical truth, the pleasure, the sweetness of contemplation of the Blessed Sacrament, the consolation. Do I live for the consolations I find from worshiping God? The pleasure of knowing Jesus Christ spiritually. The pleasure of being charitable can't be the final end, even if it's good. Because in everything, that which pertains to its essence is distinct from its proper accident. Thus in man it is one thing that he's a mortal, rational animal, another that he's a risible animal, an animal that can laugh. We must therefore consider that every delight is a proper accident resulting from happiness or from some part of happiness. Ah, again, it's the pleasure is a result of happiness. But it's not the ident it's not identical to happiness. That's this is this is the hardest thing to learn for the very virtuous person. This is another thing religious go through. John the Cross talks about this is the dark night of the senses. That basically you don't love God for the consolations you receive from knowing and loving God. And God makes darn well sure you understand it if you're in religious life. There's a lot of people who enter contemplative I I've worked a lot with contemplative nuns. You know, and they enter, and you warn them, this is a hard life. And they say, I know, Father. And they enter, and like, they're like, you know, my first two years, I experienced almost no consolation. And you're like, that's good. You're really strong. God loves you. And they're like, that, don't say that. That's upsetting. You're like, no, no, because if you're weaker, he'd have to give you lots of consolation to get, keep you going. But he's giving them what John the Cross calls the dark night of the senses, different than the dark night of the soul. He's purifying them of the affective delight that they could receive so that they begin to more strongly love God for his own sake. Since the reason that a man is delighted is that he has some fitting good, rather in either in reality or in hope, or at least in memory. Well, that's interesting. You can be delighted because you possess Christ now, you experience Christ, the consolation of Christ's presence now, or you hope to experience it again, and you delight in that, or you have a memory of a consolation, and delight in that. Now, a fitting good, if indeed it is a perfect good, is precisely man's happiness, and if it is imperfect, it will be a share of happiness, either proximate or remote, or at least apparent. Therefore, it's evident that neither is the light which results from the perfect good, the very essence of happiness, but something resulting therefrom as a proper accident. Uh, you know, like, you're with your spouse, and you say, your, your, your spouse says, honey, what is it you really love about me? And you say, well, 
what I really love is that, you know, you're such a good friend to me that when I'm with you, I always feel like I achieved my own inner equilibrium. And my life, reaches, I reach this very virtuous degree of pleasure where I have a kind of, you know, deep sense of well-being. And I, I really feel this trust that another person cares about me, so I have security. And, uh, and is that all? Yeah, yeah, well, that's the heart of it. Okay, this is a failed project, okay? This is not, this is, this is not, things are not going well, right? So that's like you, you know, you, you don't love the other person for her or his own sake. You, you love the procurement of the legitimate, legitimate spiritual and moral pleasures of being in a deep friendship with someone, okay? So this suggests that actually being virtuous is as much as it does procure rest or pleasure or happiness, and it should, it doesn't really lead to a stable state wherein you, uh, at some point, no longer ever have to expect to struggle morally again. There's like an open-endedness where there's going to be uh, new battlegrounds, new testing, and new growth. But that doesn't mean it's all going to be trial either. Okay. And then he goes and he attacks bodily pleasures. I'm not going to go after that. You can, you can, well, you know, you can, you can read that to your friends at Princeton uh, during the uh, Friday night at midnight uh, when they've had a little too much. But basically, if if the soul's powers of reason and, and and the will are the core powers that need to find satisfaction, that can't happen through just the anesthetization of the senses. Okay, does the good of the soul constitute man's happiness? We're coming to the end here soon. Does some good of the soul constitute our happiness? I answer that, as stated above, the end is twofold, the thing itself which we desire to attain and the use, namely the attainment or possession of that thing. If then we speak of man's last end as to the thing itself which we desire as last end, it is impossible for man's last end to be the soul itself or something belonging to it. Okay, so that's like... Why do you exist to attain happiness? What's happiness? Well, that I should have a well-functioning soul. It's a problem. I mean, if I attain happiness, I'll have a well-functioning soul. But that's not the purpose of life. That's a use of the soul's powers. That's good use. Because the soul considering itself as something existing in potentiality for it, uh, is, is as something existing in potentiality for it, becomes knowing actually from being potentially knowing, actually virtuous from becoming potentially virtuous. Now, since potentiality is for the sake uh, of act as for its fulfillment, that which in itself is in potentiality cannot be the last end, so the soul is not its last end. One of the former masters of the order was touring a house. They do visitations. Visitations, you go see the state of the house. And he said, this is his words, he, w he walked into the rec room where there was a television in the middle of the day at 2 p.m. He said one of the brothers who, as he put it, was particularly lazy, was sitting, was lying on the sofa clicking the television channel. And he said to him, what are you doing? This is the master of the order talking to this friar. And he looked at him without missing a beat. He looked at him and says, he was British. He looked at him and said, I am being an eschatological sign. I'm being an eschatological sign. It's the sign of the end of the world. It's what the Second Vatican Council says, religious in the world are signs of the end time. <laughs> they, they, they abstain from the things of this world in order to, to procure our expectation of the world, life of the world to come. So this fellow, who was very theologically instructed, 
gave a kind of smart aleck answer saying I'm being an eschatological sign by doing nothing I'm preparing the end of the world what he was really basically saying was he's you know he's being useless for God but he actually you know it's there's a lot of irony it's like it's very clever Dominican sort of a <laughs> anyway it's it's a corrupt our orders corrupt in different ways so the Dominicans can use their learning to think about virtue rather than at moments when they actually ought to exhibit it and we all do it a little but anyway the point is it's not um, what he's arguing here is uh, the soul actually is in potentiality to excellence, and it doesn't really achieve its own natural terminus as a dynamic, uh, <coughs> as a principle that is dynamically oriented to the truth and to love the good and to achieve happiness only by staying in potentiality. There's no couch potato spirituality here. You can't just lie on the sofa and watch the, and change the, t the TV channels and achieve what will really give the deep fulfillment and happiness to the human person. Because we're really meant to be agents of truth, contemplators of truth and agents of truth, uh, lovers of the good, possessing the good, and communicating the good through love. It, until you get into that activity of dynamically tending toward the truth, conveying the truth, dynamically seeking to love and to communicate love, you aren't really allowing the soul to be its full self. In like manner, neither can anything belonging to it, whether power, habit, or act, for the good, which is the last end, is the perfect good fulfilling the desire. Da 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 da. Okay, I'm not going to go on with all that. Let's turn the page. Whether any created good constitutes man's happiness. Now, actually, I think things begin to acquire teeth. You know, Aquinas has taken a long time to build up, and now he's finally making a kind of a divot here, and he's going vertical. He's, he's eliminated a lot of false suspects. Now, it's interesting some things he didn't eliminate. He didn't ask questions like this. Is friendship that which gives us the greatest happiness? Is the philosophical contemplation of the truth that which gives us the greatest happiness? Is a constructive life in a common good of society where you exhibit political responsibility that which gives us the greatest happiness? Is family life where people live virtuously together with those they love most according to nature as spouses and as parents and children that which gives us the greatest happiness? Now, if he did do those things, you'd see there's lots of nuances for how he does. He does treat a lot of that in the order of other places. He treats those questions in the order of charity, which is in the Secunda Secunda question, after question 23. And in the Summa Contra Gentiles, book three, he looks at the, some of those more, as it were, uh, what's it call it, uh, legitimate suspects. Because he does think we need friends, and he does think we need to seek the truth philosophically. But he just thinks the happiness procured by those things is always limited and never the final end. Here, he cuts more to the chase. He's eliminated a lot of bad, you know, uh, you know, red herrings, distractions. Now he goes to a, a more brutal negative way. Is, can any created good constitute our happiness? I answer that it's impossible for any created good to constitute man's happiness, for happiness is the perfect good which lulls the appetite altogether. I mean, what we need is something that can make us happy all the way down. 
else it would not be the last end if something else remained to be desired. As good as marriage is, as good as friendship is, as good as philosophical knowledge is, as good as political responsibility is, and he'll say later even, as good as faith is, these things aren't fulfilling enough. Now the object of the will of man's appetite is the universal good. He doesn't mean like the abstract concept of the universal, like I can think about any good. He also doesn't mean all the different goods in the world. He means the sovereign good that's the universal source of all good in the world and is itself transcendent. Just as the object of the intellect is the universal true, hence it is evident that naught can lull man's will save the universal good. This is to be found not in any creature but in God alone because every creature has goodness by participation. We participate in being good because we are caused by he who is sovereignly good and universally good. The goodness from before the foundation of the world, the goodness behind every other goodness, the hidden and mysterious transcendent goodness that's behind the veil of this world that we don't really know but which we're desperately hardwired to want. Now you see we're in drama. We want something because of the kind of nobility of the creature we are. We're capable of the universal truth and the universal good. We're hardwired to want something that we can't evade wanting and we have some faint knowledge of or aspiration to know, but we also have no direct access to. This is not good. This is a problem. This is also true. We are in a dramatic situation. And the answer to it is that we need that universal good and truth to speak to us and help us by what we call grace, the presence of God actively giving us faith, hope, and charity. And even more perfectly, we need him to walk onto the stage and become himself an agent in the drama of human history. So it would be fitting if he were to become human, that would be quite a help in knowing him. Wherefore God alone can satisfy the will of man according to the words of the psalm, therefore God alone constitutes man's happiness. Now he says what, in talking about what happiness is, in the next article which you don't have, he asks, let me just tell you what the questions are he asks. There are eight of them. You can listen to them in a spirit of Zen-like meditation. Whether happiness is something uncreated What's uncreated? God. Yeah, only God. Happiness is us. So, no, happiness is created. If it is something created, whether in an operation, do we achieve happiness through an operation of the powers of the soul? Yeah, it's an act of the intellect and will by which we possess the good. It's through operations that we become. He doesn't mean like, you know, undergoing an operation. Mm -hmm. He means natural activities of the intellect. Whether this is an operation of the sensitive or only of the intellectual part, it's primarily the intellectual part. It's the faculties of intellect and will that make us most happy and free. If it be an operation of the intellectual part, whether it's an operation of the intellect or of the will, this is a test. <laughs> now this is a huge fight in Christian history. Who says, who is the most famous ar arguer that it's in the will that we become? I don't know, Bonaventure may argue it. It's Scotus is really goes hard after Aquinas on this. Aquinas thinks it's the intellect. It's interesting. 
Aquinas thinks seeing the truth, con contemplating the truth, is the ultimate principle of happiness. And he thinks the will matters because the will follows. When I gaze on God, then I love God. If I see gaze on God with my mind, I love God then with my heart. But the greatest and most noble thing in the mind of the human being is the mind gazing on God. If it's an, op I'm going to read you one essay, one article at the end. But I'm reading it. So we're, we're, we've, those are, I did four of them. Here's the fifth. If it, if it be an operation of the intellect, whether it is an operation of the speculative or the practical intellect. Now you know what this, he's going to say. Am I made happy person for us through my practical life or through my speculative life, my theoretical knowledge of the truth? What's he going to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. Knowing the truth for its own sake. This is totally why Sacra Doctrina is a speculative science of the good, of God. Coming to gaze on the Holy Trinity for God's own sake. I have a friend who's a contemplative nun who's older than me, and I was once trying to raise money for her, which didn't work, actually. But the point is I was talking to people about the contemplative life, and I said, now, if I'm talking to potential benefactors, and I want to say, what is it? You, they, they say that typical American thing, what do they do? What, what do you think I should say to them? You know, I'm like searching for something kind of diplomatic, and she said, you should tell them that we are radically useless because we live for God alone and that this is what is the essence of life because God is worth it. And in heaven, we will all exist for God's own sake because he is what is greatest and most noble. <laughs> That's awesome. And it's true. It's not a good fundraising pitch. <laughs> Except maybe it is if you really know what money's for, right? I mean, that's an interesting question, right? Should, should we, Aquinas actually argues in Summa Contra Gentiles that the, be, the best part of the political community are the people who, who just exist to contemplate God for his own sake because they remind the whole political community of why the political community exists. And he makes, it, he makes this argument, by the way, philosophically. He doesn't make it from theological. He makes it, the argument philosophically. Now, you're not going to convince everybody of that who's not well disposed, okay? But it's true, I think. Anyway, it's the theoretical intellect. Now, it also then can direct all practical action. Article 6, if it's an operation of the speculative intellect, you notice how he's going through the scholastic division, getting more and more refined. If it's an operation of the speculative intellect, whether it consists in the consideration of the speculative sciences. Okay, so does happiness, is basically happiness to be a philosophical metaphysician. Like basically someone like Aristotle or Plato or Plotinus. These are the happiest people. That's the, only, that's the way you really can become happy, is to like contemplate the one with Plotinus or God with Aristotle. Or for that matter, Aquinas' contemplation of God as a philosopher in Summa Contra Gentiles, book one. Like I'm going to become, okay. Now Aquinas thinks that's, that's actually, he says, this is the greatest beatitude man can acquire in the order of nature. He does actually say, the philosophical sage who uses his mind to contemplate God philosophically achieves a kind of, he calls it an imperfect happiness or an imperfect beatitude that is the highest good of the human, human excellence, highest good of the human mind in this world according to nature, not according to supernature. And it's interesting how he thinks that that's taken up into the craft of theology, just like the De Deo Uno we saw he uses the arguments of existence of God and then metaphysical reason about God. So he sees himself as recapitulating a lot of this life of the philosophical sage in the project of being a theologian. It's interesting. 
But he, of course, argues that that is not the ultimate source of happiness. Why? Because you don't know God well enough. It's way too unsatisfying, even as it's most noble. Even if it's the happiest thing the mind can do in this life to think philosophically about God, it's still not enough. Whether it consists in the consideration of separated substances, angels. Should we philosophically think about angels as the source of happiness? Say, well, that is really unlikely. Yeah, but the problem is there were some Muslim philosophers who claimed that this was like the highest the mind could go. So he's just basically checking that box and saying, no, that's wrong. The mind's made for God, not angels. So then he comes to Article 8. Whether happiness consists in the sole contemplation of God seen in his essence. I answer that. Final and perfect happiness or beatitude, he's the word in Latin, beatitudo, is nothing else than the vision of the divine essence. Now, he doesn't mean seeing God with your eyes, right? He means perceiving God intellectually face to face by grace, by the grace of God coming to see the very essence of life of God, to see the Holy Trinity, to see the very nature of God in its perfection and transcendence. To make this clear, two points may be, must be observed. First, that man is not perfectly happy so long as something remains for him to seek, to desire, and seek. But that's said so gently. But that really is a long spear cast deep into the human heart. You can read that line all the way through your life, and it keeps on tormenting you. It's just so, so nice how Aquinas says it. That man is not perfectly happy so long as something remains in him to desire and seek. And that's going to be true our whole life. But that's the good side, that's the bad side of the good thing, which is that we're actually meant to see God, and that therefore nothing else can satisfy us fully. Second, that the perfection of any power is determined by the nature of its object. Now, the object of the intellect is what a thing is, the essence of a thing, according to De Anima 3.6. We, we, we seek to know the nature of a thing. My intellect wants to know what's the difference between a dog and a human being and a kangaroo and a supernova and a cactus. Well, I need to know essentially what those things are. Therefore, the intellect attains perfection insofar as it knows the essence of a thing. If, therefore, an intellect knows the essence of some effect, ah, we're back to smoke and trees and forest fires and Spartan soldiers. If an intellect knows the essence of some effect, whereby it is not possible to know the essence of the cause, i.e., to know of the cause what it is, that intellect cannot said to be reached the cause simply, though it may be able to gather from the effect the knowledge of, that, of what that cause is. Okay, so if I see the smoke, but I don't know ever what fire really is, I know there's such a thing as fire, but I still want to know what fire is. But what if the whole world is the smoke, and I never come to know the fire? I know there is a fire in God that we call God, from which the world emanates, but I never know it in itself. And yet this, unlike the Spartan army signals, this is the most important truth, because it's the cause of everything else that is. And yet I can't know it in itself perfectly. I only know it through its effects. Consequently, man and man knows an effect and knows that it has a cause. There naturally remains in the man the desire to know what the of the cause what it is. Think about like being an orphan. I mean, I don't know if any of you, maybe some of you are, but I mean, I've worked with people who are, you know, adopted and never know who their parents are. Now they know they have a father and a mother. I mean, biologically, they have a very interesting, deep, visceral desire to know who their parents were, their biological parents, and why they were given up. It's very interesting. It's very spiritually powerful. It has huge effects on their life. Now, think in a less psychologically tangible way, but perhaps in a more profound metaphysically way. 
about the fact that all of us are naturally speaking in a state of religious orphanage. We are from some first cause. We can kind of see that, well, maybe, if we start to pay attention and stand on our tippy toes intellectually and look up at the world. It, it's caused by some mysterious source, but we don't know it in itself. So our metaphysical intelligence can have a natural desire to see God. It's normal, philosophically speaking, to want to see God, the essence of God. And what if Christianity teaches us that that is precisely the, the deepest reason God has revealed himself? You know, that's actually what Catholicism, or at least it's Aquinas' Catholicism, what Catholicism tells us. What's the fundamental motivation for revelation? Not so God became human. Not so we know a lot of stuff. Not so that we become sa be saved. Not so that we become good people. That's all, that's all secondary. It's really important. It's absolutely essential, but it's essential secondarily. What's essentially first is God revealed himself so that you and I could see God face to face and share in God's life and know our Father immediately in the vision of God so that we don't live as spiritual orphans but as adopted sons and daughters who come to know God immediately in heaven and see God forever face to face. That is the core mystery of our lives and that's why revelation transpired. This is Aquinas' view and that can orient our whole moral life in joy and confidence and faith because we're like oriented as pilgrims toward the vision of God, the beatific vision, the vision that renders us really finally deeply happy. And that's the deepest truth of the faith, that we've been called by God to see God one day face to face. He says, it's natural to desire to see the cause when you know the effects, and this desire is one of wonder and causes inquiry, as Aristotle says on the first page of the Metaphysics. For instance, if a man, knowing the eclipse of the sun, consider that it must be due to some cause and not know what the cause is, he wonders about it. And from wondering proceeds to inquire. You see, so the whole world is like an eclipse of the sun, and we want to know who's the sun behind the eclipse. If, therefore, the human intellect, knowing the essence of some created effect, knows no more of God than that he is, the perfection of that intellect does not yet reach simply the first cause, for there remains in it the natural desire to seek the cause. Wherefore, it's not yet perfectly happy. The intellect will not rest till it sees God. Consequently, for perfect happiness, the intellect needs to reach the very essence of the first cause, and thus it will have its perfection through union with God as with that object in which ma alone man's happiness consists, as stated above. It's pretty strong. It's very stark, but it's awesome. We're meant to see God face to face, and that's like the, that was what polarizes our whole life. And that puts everything else in perspective so that you can enjoy the other goods of this world and the limited happiness of soul or body, and for that matter, all the you know, things we've looked at, pleasure, power, honor, wealth, glory, all that, but grounded in something much deeper that can polarize our uh, attentiveness to all the other goods, including goods like learning, friendship, delight in contemplation, including even the natural contemplation of God, philosophical acquisition of wisdom. For that matter, the acquisition of knowledge in faith, theological knowledge, and even the pleasure of faith, mystical contemplation of God, spiritual experiences, the elevating effects of grace indwelling in us. All of that has to be ordered towards something higher, which is ultimately union with God and the desire to see God. Okay, so it's a... It's a really deep vision. It's very challenging. It's, whole, it's completely challenging. But he's a saint. 
he's a saint and also a brilliant philosopher and theologian. So it's, it's got, this is one of the reasons Aquinas is so powerful. He's so plausible and he's so challenging. You know, you see the rationality of it and the, and the sort of gritty realism of it. And it's so actual. And at the same time, you see like the asp aspiration to holiness in it and the kind of wonderful horizon of challenge it offers. It's not boring. If anything, it's you know the opposite problem. It's it's like I I don't you know this is a very beautiful father, but I, I'm not I'm not a mountain climber. I'm not a mountain climber. I, I live on the plain. I live on the plain. And then you know if you spend enough time with Aquinas, Jesus hands you your backpack, and he says, "We're going to climb." Do you have a question? How does um, happiness from Aristotle differ, if at all, from Aristotle from Aquinas? Well, there's a mountain of literature on this. I mean, actually, let me name at least three controversies, just so you know they exist. One is, what is happiness in aerosol? It's clear, well, it seems clear he says it consists in contemplation in the end of the Nicomachean Ethics. And it does seem like he thinks it's contemplation of the first principle, which, if you read the metaphysics, seems to be God. But some people think that's a rather too religious reading of, of, of aerosol. That is the, the direction Aquinas and the Christian tradition tends to read him in. Some people read him as like just saying, trying to understand reality intellectually in light of its first principles. A lot of secular intellectuals who like Aristotle read him that way. I think he's rightly read more in the traditional Christian way. But you know, I think with Aristotle you should say he's in a potentiality of many readings and some are much more plausible than others. And you don't actually have to prove that you're reading is the right one. You can just show there's lots of meaningful readings that come out of him. But I think Aquinas is definitely one of the more plausible. That's a more modest way of saying it. Some people would say it more aggressively. Aristotle is read best by Aquinas. But I think, yeah, it's vagueness how to read Aristotle. I do think it's about God for him. Related to that, is that an inclusive or an exclusive um, happiness? In other words, if I love God, if I, no, no, sorry, if I seek to know God through contemplation for Aristotle, do I need other things like friendship, material wealth? I have an inclusive reading. I think Aristotle thinks you need a certain base of security and friendship and support and education to support growing up toward God in philosophical contemplation. So if you're starving to death, that contemplation is not going to work out too well because you don't have time or you know resources. Okay, so it seems to me. Uh, that's an argument. Aquinas uses that argument to say that's why that contemplation is so fragile because the, ph the philosopher, even though he does this most noble contemplation of God philosophically, it can be eviscerated by circumstances. He has other arguments in the Summa Contra Gentiles. Um, there is also the question of whether, and I think this is not fair, but some people want to argue that the eudaimonianism of Aristotle is ultimately self-serving and narcissistic or residually self-concerned. So I'm you know, using my speculative knowledge of the truth to satisfy myself with a kind of intellectual pleasure of happiness in the possession of truth. You see Aquinas going after that argument and distinguishing pleasure from happiness, which Aristotle does as well. So that's a kind of Thomistic reading of Aristotle to try to get Aristotle off the hook. And I think it's a very good way to try to do it. Like if I were going to try to defend Aristotle in a court of, uh, in a metaphysical court of law, I would probably use the old lawyerly argument of Aquinas there to get him off the hook of that charge of self-interest. Because I'd say, well, it's spiritual pleasures is not what it's about for Aristotle. 
A second controversy is about whether Aquinas preserves the Aristotelian concept of happiness in doing what he just, we just saw him doing, or whether he's in fact exploding it. So the argument that he preserves it is that he still thinks there's a, what we call an imperfect beatitude of natural happiness through philosophical contemplation of God, but then what he calls now a perfect beatitude of supernatural happiness that's achieved through, in this life, faith, hope, and charity, but perfected in the vision of God in the life to come. I hold for, and this is a traditional Dominican reading, this view that there's an imperfect beatitude and a perfect beatitude. I mean, he does talk about this. This being one um, during human life and one during... Well, not exactly, because in this life, Aquinas thinks we can achieve both the imperfect. But we can achieve the imperfect through becoming, by philosophical contemplation of God, and the, per the, the perfect can begin in us by faith, hope, and love. So you can have them co-simultaneously, but you're teleologically on, on pilgrimage towards the beatific vision. And I think Aquinas, well, Aquinas clearly does think natural knowledge of God and natural contemplation of God is preserved in heaven. He's very clear about this in the Trees on the Angels. The angels continued to contemplate God philosophically in heaven, philosophically and by natural knowledge, even as they contemplate God in the beatific vision by grace. That's really, that's how high up this goes. This goes on forever, right? So the use of philosophy and theology goes on into the beatific vision because you still remain a philosophical contemplative even as you're theological because grace doesn't destroy nature. So I think that preservative thesis is right, but other people who take the explosive theory think that he's basically taking the secular, the secular Aristotelian view and, and, and kind of saying, no, your pagan wisdom isn't ever going to satisfy the human mind. Let me show you how you need to negate that that is ultimately. So that negation of the speculative sciences is the ultimate good in, in question three is actually about breaking it open, exploding it to show it's now the Christians who promise the real ultimate supernatural end and the old pagan idea of a pure philosophical happiness is going away. And I think that that's making Aquinas the kind of anti-philosophical existentialist he never was. But this is a hugely polemical topic among Thomistic and Thomistic scholarship. And it's related to the third controversy, which is about the natural desire to see God, which is the controversy that most um, inflames the Thomistic world about these questions, which is Aquinas just argued, I just read to you, that he says, if you know the effect you desire, naturally see the cause. So we have a natural desire to see God face to face. What is the species of that desire, that intellectual desire? Is that species, that object, a naturally known object? Or is it a natural inclination, a natural desire to see the supernatural mystery of the Trinity? That's my own way of putting it. But basically, some people, including the mainstream in the Thomistic combinatorial tradition from people like Banyez or, um, um, well, Cajetan for that matter, in two different ways. Sylvester Ferrara is one of the most important. They argue that the philosopher, qua philosopher, has a natural desire to see God. Because when you begin to know that there is a first principle, you have a, you have a kind of native philosophical desire to know that reality as perfectly as you can, so you kind of want to see it directly. That's not the same thing as a natural desire to see the Trinity, specifically speaking. 
But the revelation of the Trinity and the revelation of the possibility of the beatific vision speaks directly to that natural desire in us. So it can evoke it and educate it. That's the old-fashioned Dominican view. Other people read Aquinas. This is the, the other view is from Henry de Lubac, and it's followed by some major people like Laporta, Gilson. They think there's a kind of latent, hidden, ink, inclination or tendency in the soul, nature of the human soul and the angel to go beyond something proportionate to us by nature into something supernatural, properly speaking. So that we're, we're as it were, naturally hardwired before grace to want the supernatural. And so that when the supernatural is revealed to us, we discover our own true nature as being made for the vision of the Holy Trinity. So that in a certain way, without the revelation of the Trinity in Christ, you can't really know your own natural inclinations. So you need theology in a way to reveal to you philosophically why you exist. And this is really like a, a much more radical claim about the fact that human nature is opaque to itself in some very radical way, even philosophically speaking, unless God reveals himself to us and reveals the beatific vision of the Holy Trinity, because otherwise we won't even know our natural end. And that's a very pre um, prevalent line of thinking in the 20th century. And I, I'm on the first, I hold the first position. I've written an article on this that is, I think, accessible, if you want me to send it to you, where I note the, uh, some of the protagonists of the other side, and you can read some of their stuff and some of the key passages in Aquinas. It seems to me very clear that Aquinas holds something like the first view. There's a major work on this, arguing that, by a man named Feingold on Aquinas on the Natural Desire to See God. It's an 800-page book. It's actually, it's actually, I find it reading like a Dostoevsky novel, like it's a page turner for me. It's like a mystery novel because he shows you all the historical like arguments and what all the different claims people make and he recapitulates it. It's like a giant trial and you're going back through all the different, you know, who committed the crime, who got it right, you know, and then at the end he has two or three chapters of summary and I find it very fascinating. But the point is there's some really big books written pro contra uh, these positions. So it, it's possible to be the kind of person in St. Thomas we spend a lot of time on controversies. But it's also not necessary. You can let those things sharpen your reading of Aquinas and still be more interested in like the conversation ad extra, like how to put Aquinas in conversation with Kant or Hume. Uh, and those are also radically important you know, uh, stances. And we need people doing that. You know, so there's different ways to inhabit the, the scholarly world of Thomism where you're really working on the textual questions of what he said in his historical context, where you look at the history of commentary, where you're looking at different ways of interpreting him by his different interpreters, where you're looking at different ways in which he can engage with either his critics in the 14th century or subsequent or contemporary debates about the nature of reality. So there's a lot of options when you get into this stuff.